This program deals with themes of an adult nature and is intended for a mature audience. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. We must guard against the military-industrial complex. Exopolitics, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events. From somewhere in the desert, between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Fairy Tales. Because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery, fight for liberty! The only thing we have to fear is fear itself! Sooner or later, though. You always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, please make yourself at home. I want to thank you, Veritas member, for making this program possible. Tonight's special guest is Philip Coppets, author and investigative journalist, ranging from the world of politics to ancient history and mystery. He will discuss his work on ancient aliens, as well as Eric von Daniken's new book, Odyssey of the Gods, The History of Extraterrestrial Contact, in ancient Greece. Philip Coppens will be with us shortly. To listen to the full interview, just go to veritasradio.com and subscribe. You will receive your login immediately and will have access to all of our material, audio, video, and even the very special Manticore Forum, where people around the world discuss the real news that matter. And don't forget, you don't have to spend the whole day trying to find a source for MMS. You can get it right from us. Go to the Veritas store. And the book Veritas Scriptum, The Truth is Written, Volume 1, is now available. I decided to start putting our show transcripts in book format. These are the first 11 interviews we did, and the book is about 400 pages long. We'll continue including the rest soon. We never know when our electronics may fail, so putting them on paper was important to me. Go to our website for more information. And since we're continuing with our transcripts, if you want a subscription but cannot afford one, click on the free subscription link 
of our website. And if you're ready, willing, and able to transcribe, read the instructions and contact us. And for the metal-cased USB drives, including Seasons 1, 2, or 3, go to our website as well for availability. And to get in touch with me, just click on the contact button of our website, veritasradio.com. Why was Greece a likely place for ET contact? Have the stories of the Greeks and other civilizations been mythologized by Western historians when in reality, they may have been factual. Everyone believed the story of Troy was a myth until a German archeologist discovered it was fact. We see science fiction as something from the future. Why did the Greeks talk about advanced technology and weapons as part of their past? Why is academia behaving like organized religion or organized crime as it relates to new ideas and closes its doors to anyone who does not profess their dogma? Are they simply doing their master's bidding by keeping our true history off limits and maintaining the current paradigm? For answers to these and many more questions, Philip Coppins is coming up next. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. This is Colin Andrews, and you're listening to Veritas Radio. Philip Coppens is an author and investigative journalist, ranging from the world of politics to ancient history and mystery. He co-hosts the Spirit Revolution radio show with his wife Kathleen McGowan, and is a frequent contributor to Nexus Magazine and Atlanta's Rising Magazine. Since 1995, he has lectured extensively and has appeared in a number of television and DVD documentaries, including Ancient Aliens, the series on the History Channel. He is the author of The Stone Puzzle of Rosalind Chapel, The Canopus Revelation, Land of the Gods, The New Pyramid Age, Servants of the Grail, The Ebook 2012, Science or Fiction, and The Ancient Alien Question. Philip is originally from Belgium, but now spends time between the United States and the United Kingdom. And to learn more about Philip Cuppins on his work, visit his website at philipcuppins.com. And directly from Los Angeles, California, I would like to welcome Philip Cuppins. Hello, Philip, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? I'm extremely well, Mel, and uh, thank you for having me on your radio show. It's my pleasure. And first, Philip, I want to thank you for, for being here and, and speaking on behalf of uh, Mr. Eric von Daniken. Uh, he seems to be out of the proverbial spotlight these days. And not only do you discuss his work, but you are also the editor for his latest book, Odyssey of the Gods, The History of Extraterrestrial Contact in Ancient Greece. Tell us a little bit more about how you converge with Mr. von Daniken. 
Well, um, Eric and I have known each other since uh, 1995, and as it so happened, in the Dev Framework 1993-1995 onwards, Eric's best friend, uh, Ulik Dopatka, actually spent time in, in Belgium. He worked there part-time. And so it quite often happened that we hung around after work, um, drinking a few Belgian beers or maybe not. <laughs> and um, at that moment in time, I, you know, Eric was still working very closely together with uh, a Chicago lawyer called um, uh, I've actually forgotten his name uh, literally as I was about to say his name he the, the name disappeared uh, but together they had um, basically created the the ancient astronaut society and uh, Gene Phillips and at that moment in time, they were also organizing conferences. And what happened was that I began to speak at some of these conferences in uh, 95, 97, and 99. So I got to know um, Eric quite well. Eric is also a consultant for a German publisher. And over the years, um, I have helped um, him find some, some people. Uh, the late Stan Hall, who was the person who... Uh, basically did an awful lot of research for the Metal Library in Ecuador was one of the people who uh, I, I, asked, I, I spoke Eric about because what had happened there was that Eric, for example, had known Stan since the 1970s and then uh, contact had been lost and, and I kind of like brought them together again. So, you know, I, I would say that I don't have much contact with Eric, but we've, we've had a long uh, and established relationship. It's, it's, it's one of these relationships that, you know, you, um, you how, even though it's sometimes years since you've last spoken uh, with one another, you, you just pick it up as if nothing ever got left. Now, we now have the internet, and this is becoming more mainstream. And, and as I said before we started, uh, folks, uh, I want to mention that Philip Coppins is an integral part of the History Channel's Ancient Aliens TV series. This program has exploded, Philip. Is this proof that the topic is no longer alternative and it's more, it's indeed mainstream? Well, I think there are several aspects here. One of them is that uh, what television has done so often is that whenever the Matrix happens, whenever there's a new Indiana Jones movie or another, um, you know, take your pick movie, they will do a two-hour special, whether it's ABC, CBS, or NBC, and then it disappears again. We mm -hmm. saw this with the Da Vinci Code as well. When the Da Vinci Code um, became a, a mass success, every channel did a one- or two-hour documentary, and they all interviewed the same people. And then it disappeared again. Yeah. Um, and so, and, and an awful lot of these approaches is also that somehow television lens seems to be convinced that there needs to be a battle between side A and side B, the believers versus the skeptic, who's going to win. Um, and really, the, it's, it's, it's a very outdated model. It's a model which people don't really like because people – Everybody's time today is valuable. When we want to uh, watch a show on television, we want to find out what the outcome is going to be. When we're watching American Idol or The X Factor, we know early on we're going to get to hear gigantically crappy voices and gigantically beautiful voices, which are hopefully going to take us all the way through to the final. And then, you right. know, an idol or a winner is being produced. So we know what we're going to expect. And when it comes to things like the History Channel and a few other channels, what people want to find out is that at the end of 
an hour of their time, they're going to learn something. And so this show format whereby side A is going to say something and side B is all going to deny it and say there's no truth to it whatsoever, leaves people dissatisfied. And so Ancient Aliens has a different approach. Ancient Aliens is basically saying this is the perspective from certain people now go out into the big world and we basically leave it up to you um, you know because everybody who's watching this um, has an opinion and has an intellectual cap- capability to find out whether you find this convincing or not and we are not going to preach to you and so this this non-preaching approach I think is quite important from uh, the success of Ancient Aliens and I also think that what Ancient Aliens has done is show that this is something which shouldn't just be discussed at two-hour specials whenever a movie comes out, but that these subject matters really can stand on their own and that there is a sufficient market out there. Um, you know, whether it is a Da Vinci Code, which sold 80 million copies, Eric von Daniken has sold 63 million copies. All of these, you know, Eric has written, I think, 28 books. All of these people um, have shown that there is a lasting interest um, far beyond the, the norm of just a two-hour special. And so really what it boils down to is that what is Ancient Alien showing is that this is something which is there to last. And I think this is like you know the, the pioneering program in the sense that um, it's in season I've, I've actually just finished uh, filming season four, my parts of it. It's um, you know another 15 episodes of, of Ancient Aliens uh, that is talk about the season five, even six and seven. So an enormous amount of television hours are being produced discussing ancient civilization. And it has an appeal from uh, H age 5 to to age 95 and it, it does come up over as, as a mainstream show at the end of each uh, episode uh, accor- um, across the various um, countries uh, about a hundred million people will have seen an episode of ancient aliens so uh, you know it, the viewing figures are good and it, it does have that ma- that mass appeal so I think what it's showing as a TV show is that the world has always been interested in this and they just have been waiting for a show to to really put that teeth in and, and the first and hopefully not the last show uh, of this kind is Ancient Aliens but I really do hope that, that other channels and other subjects are being um, you know following the same approach and definitely the producers Prometheus um, are, are trying to do as such with, with other shows and other topics and I think uh, any any program out there especially Ancient Aliens that that percent of the information without the pro or con that we see in, in, in most media is what I call mature TV because it allows the viewer to make their own decisions, to investigate for themselves. They're basically just presenting the information, which is so important these days. In the, in the, going to, 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 to the 1970s for, for a moment, I believe Eric Von Daniken was attacked by, by academia, just as uh, Michael Cremo and Graham Hancock are attacked today by academia because of their views. Can you comment on that? Yes, I mean, you know, the, the, the ancient aliens is, you know, watched by millions of people. And this also includes archaeology students. And yeah. so we, we get some reactions from that. And, and they have this, um, the, there's one very funny incident from, from a student who, who asked the, the professor this. And the professor said, Oh, we know this is incorrect. Mm. And the student basically said, Well, how do you know? And the professor repeated just louder, We know. 
Um, and it, it shows this attitude that they feel that they shouldn't dame themselves with, with doing these things. I have, you know, an extremely negative view, um, of, of academia as, as a whole. Um, I think they are right up there with the, um, economic people who have led us into the financial quagmire, which we're in. Uh, I also believe that they are of the same form and shape as, as so many politicians. Ivory Tower. Um, it's it's an ivory tower but also they they played this game and you know um i mean i I will answer the question straight away but i just want to throw in this example which is that they have uh created this game which has nothing to do with reality for example in the 1980s there were carbon dating results from the great pyramid and the pyramid right next to it these carbon dating results showed that the pyramid next to it was older than the Great Pyramid by a few uh, decades, and that both of them were roughly 500 years older than uh, currently accepted. There is no debate about the validity of this carbon dating. It's not contested at all. So what should have happened is that these carbon dating results should have been published in a peer-reviewed journal, and then everybody would have been discussing this. However, these carbon dating results destroy the accepted chronology of ancient Egypt. It pushes everything out by 500 years, and it also shows that the Great Pyramid isn't built as the first one, uh, and then followed by the uh, Khafre's Pyramid next to it, but vice versa. So this is a problem to them. So what they have been doing for 30 years is making sure that these carbon dating results don't get published because they play this game that as long as the carbon dating results don't get published in a peer-reviewed journal they don't have to look at it and they do this time and time and time and time again it is there is extraordinary amounts of material coming out of nasa and various other astrobiology um, organizations and professors um, who which basically shows that life cannot have originated on this planet mm-hmm. that life originated elsewhere in the universe and came to planet earth now Chandra Wickramashinghi who is one of the leading um, astrobiologists in this field has basically gone on the record and has said that since 1984 there is a conspiracy of silence whereby peer-reviewed journals are denying the possibility for anything which suggests that life did not originate on planet earth to be published this isn't science this is mafia this yes. is you know uh, it's like and not even the mafia being in control of of an organized crime division but even having taken over the fbi um, and any other intelligence organization which supposedly is hunting them this is what science is today so bring it back to the question in 1968, when um, Eric began to 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 write about these things, um, it was obviously his hope, and to some extent also the hope I think of of any uh, new kid on the block, uh, you know, whether it's Graham Hancock in his early days or, or anybody else, to to change the paradigm, to collect the material and go into the hall of academia and say, look, you know, this is what it is, and 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 please change your mind. It's like Luther slapping um, a piece of paper on, on the door of a church. Luther didn't succeed. Um, Luther, you know, in, instead went off somewhere and, and created his own uh, church. And what Eric and Graham Hancock and, and so many others have found is that you cannot change these people because they will all treat they will always treat you as outsiders. No. Um, and even if you're an insider, if you are an accepted professor, uh, and I will take here, you know, the example of, of Professor John Mack on, on, on UFOs. Sure. 
um, this was a man who was uh, who had created the psychiatry division between uh, at at Harvard um, University, and when he began to talk about UFO abduction experiences, and the only thing he said about it was that these people had uh, that these people were reacting to. Um, something which in his opinion was identical as if this had happened in reality. He wasn't saying this was an ET which was abducting them, purely that in his expert opinion, what and the way these people were reporting it was as if they had gone through it uh, for real. And he was haunted, he was demonized, he made it into Time magazine as this professor who'd, who'd finally lost it. Um, and so once again, you know, he showed that you cannot change these people. These people are clinging on to an outdated paradigm. And the reason why they're able to do that is because um, nobody has really gone uh, as a popular mass movement and said like, um, we actually do want you to discuss these things. We actually do want to find out. And the greatest crime they're getting away with today is discussing or not discussing whether or not life exists um, – sorry, whether um, there is such a thing as a soul and whether life exists after death. And the reason why they get away with not discussing this is because they have defined the game as saying that this isn't something science should be discussing, that it's something to do with religion, and so therefore they shouldn't be doing this. And we're letting them get away with this. And I think there's going to be a time in the near future uh, when this is going to change. But in the 1970s, um, you know, Eric and and other people since and, and before tried to get them to change. They went to the halls of academia and, and basically were telling them, you know, this is uh, all the evidence we have gathered. Please look at this. And the, it was a very interesting reaction because even though they mocked him uh, when it came to the Nazca lines, um, you know, the Nazca lines, basically what Eric was saying was this. He said, the Nazca lines, in my opinion, have to be viewed from above. Right. And by the way, it looks like an airport like so what they said was well we know the, the Nazca lines aren't an airport um, because you can't land there um, now that's not what Eric said he said it looked like an airport um, second of all they had not looked at all at the Nazca lines whatsoever. At that moment in time, the Nazca lines were the sole bailiwick of Maria Reiki, who was um, a somewhat elderly uh, woman at that time, who basically tried to keep these lines intact. And the little time she had uh, available besides that was to do some research into these geoglyphs and map them and, 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 and basically find more and more of them. Um, in 1968, when Eric wrote about the lines, academia swarmed to this field and began to realize that they had never discussed this and used Eric um, and saying like, oh, well, we need to come up with certain uh, material and evidence about this. And guess what they found? An area which they hadn't looked at before because they felt it was just something which really wasn't worthy of any person's attention turned out to be a civilization which had pyramids which had uh, mummification um, happening there and all of a sudden you know this was a, a pretty much a lost civilization which they uncovered and in more recent years they have also discovered that these people probably were able to take to the skies hot air balloons hot air balloons and mm. also some people who were basically kind of like you know paragliding some of these um fabrics which they were using in paragliding were actually found wrapped around a few of, of, of the mummies, um, kind of like enveloping them in them. Maybe you know, the person actually died um, crashing or he was a, a, a paraglider and they just wanted to, to, to give him wings in the afterlife. Um, but whatever the motive there, um, you know, 
Eric saying it has to be viewed from above is pretty much where science and archaeology is today, that these things are indeed meant to be seen from above. And guess what? When you read about, um, you know, even today, these the ar- these archaeologists will say, well, there's nothing to Eric because, you know, it's 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 not a spaceport. It, it's it's not a it's it's nothing like an airport. Um and it's not what Eric was saying originally. It, he said it looked like an airport and that these things had to be seen from above. And guess what? You know, that is where he was proven right. Also, in a sense that Eric uh, always had this twofold approach. In 1968, he was saying history is wrong on this and this and this and this. And he basically had this twofold approach, which was, I know history the way it is written today is wrong. So two things could have happened. One these ancestors which we're discussing here are more intelligent or if they are indeed as stupid as you say they are then there was an an outside party non-human extraterrestrial uh, or from elsewhere on on planet earth who gave them this information or built these monuments for them but definitely history is wrong and it became one you know one of the titles of his books so all of these things he tried to do um, and has been trying to do and in the 1970s he didn't get into the halls of academics and basically since um and he's definitely been writing about this more and more um you know he, he's basically given up he's he's realized that you know these people will never change he has instead been focusing on on talking to the people and specifically um or in the hopes um uh, of having a, a younger generations who are more open to these um ideas and, and Giorgio is actually one of these people Giorgio of uh, at at one point in the 90s was a a member of the um the the teenage aspect of of the ancient astronaut society Giorgio Sukalos indeed um and and basically kind of like you know bringing out this this kind of information to a younger audience who are interested and who are not yet caught in this in this trap uh of of academics and and kind of like, you know like ordinary human beings uh are not bound by this game. And also, you know, I mean, the final aspect is that in the 1970s, Eric was a person who was a, a celebrity. He had, he was selling millions of copies of his books in, in, in Switzerland and, and Germany. And as a result of that, received some attention from the German uh, media who decided to set him up. Um, Germany is is very weird um, in that aspect. People, um, I mean, I've I've been involved with some some German television documentaries, and uh, I have I've always stayed well clear of actually featuring in them. But um, people who who work on these documentaries, they quite often get tricked. Uh, there was one very funny incident, or not so funny for the person involved, whereby they basically told him, "Hold this little um, attaché case." Uh, because we just want to film you with it. Um, and so that person did. And when he f- saw the, the final conclusion, what they had done was they had played this trick as if they had given him a million euros. Oh, um, you kidding me? Really? No. Oh, yes. And, you know, you can't do anything about it because guess what? It's all covered um, within the small print of, of all of these confer- contacts. Oh. And, um, you know, Germans like setting up these kind of things because in their opinion this is good television you know um and and so it it happens time and time again in in germany um and eric at one point fell foul of this in the 1970s for a very interesting aspect it once again had to do um you know with with the with the metal with metal uh library which i was talking about with about stan hall and basically what what was happening was that uh 
he had written uh, Gold of the Gods, the, the English title of, of a book in the early 1970s. And in it, he basically went in search of, of gold, which could potentially still be hidden. Uh, stories about ancient treasure troves, which our ancestors had done and created, and some of them which was linked with the gods, that is, gold somehow belonged to the gods. And when he was in Ecuador, he was approached by an Hungarian expat called Juan Moritz. And Juan basically told Eric that he had found a a a cave where there was gold, where there was crystal, where there was a metal library um, of of a lost civilization, and so Eric, you know, went to Ecuador, um, went with Moritz to what Moritz claimed was the entrance to uh, the, this cave system, and Eric took a few photographs, wrote a book, and uh, Stern, which is something like Newsweek, Time magazine in in Germany, uh, did an interview with Moritz and and basically said to Moritz, you know, did you show um, Eric the the entrance to this cave system? And Moritz denied it. He said, no, I haven't. Um, you know, and Stern kind of said, so what happened there? And he basically Moritz admitted that he had tricked um, Eric, that he had shown him a cave, but not the cave. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, basically what, what, uh, the, the, what the magazine said was that Eric was a liar. Um, and, you know, you could say that Eric was taken in by, by a con artist, Um but he definitely wasn't a liar. So again, they, they did this level of, of, of spin on there. And then obviously, uh, you know, it, it later turned out that, I mean, this is like a, a too long story for here. Uh, but basically what had happened was that, that Moritz had heard the story of this cave, uh, didn't actually know the entrance to the cave himself. Um, but somehow felt that he had to take Eric to something and took him to, you know, a cave entrance, which was just normal. And then in the following years and decades, kind of like, you know, uh, the story of the, of the metal library was kind of like put right by, by the likes of, of, of Stan Hall. And then, uh, kind of like, you know, Eric, uh, connected again with Stan, um, and helped him publish this information in German. But it, it just shows you, uh, you know, that, that so many people are out to, to to make stories up, and um, you know Juan Moritz was definitely one of them who, uh, for a period of time, was able to to trick um, certain people until uh, it, it came out that you know he was basically uh, relating a story which was true, but it didn't have anything to do with Juan Moritz, but with somebody else. And related to this, isn't it the height of arrogance that we are a speck of sand in the universe, and yet many say we, especially academia, of course, say we are alone in the universe. Now, when someone says to me, well, prove to me that there's life outside of this planet, I say no. Prove to me that there's no life outside of this planet, don't you think? Yes, I mean, you know, it's they, uh, the view we are which, which we are still being taught is is very much that the world has existed from 4000 BC onwards uh, we we are accepting this notion that we have been around for millions of years as, as, as something of an ape right. and then for a few you know hundred thousands of years as something resembling mankind but really uh, we, we're still clinging to this notion that man as such really came about 4000 BC with civilization and and that is a notion which which is 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 quickly disappearing as well um things like gobekli tepe are showing us that our ancestors were doing extraordinary monuments um you know in in 10000 BC there is 
things like Lost Civilization of the Stone Age, a, a somewhat a compilation book by, by Richard Rudgley and obviously Michael Cremo's material, um, which shows that we have been around for far longer and that we are far more interesting than we are giving ourselves credit for. But... Um, you know, science is very much about keeping the present paradigm alive. Right. Um, and they have been doing it very dogmatically. And I think they are going to continue and try to do it very dogmatically until, again, there is going to be a, a popular movement which basically tells them that they should begin to look into these things. But, you know, it is extraordinarily arrogant. And um, they 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 are preaching. They are the new dogma they are the ones who say that they know everything and, and are quite arrogant um, at proclaiming uh, that they know everything. Um, one of the best incidents of that is probably the, the History Channel documentary called Chasing Mummies, in which you follow Dr. Zahi Hawass around. <laughs> yes. um, and, you know, um, there there is one funny incident whereby he they are doing some excavations and they find something and he says like, oh, this is 20, it's 26th dynasty. And um, the person somewhat confronts him uh, and, and says like, well, how do you know? And he just says like, because we know. Mm. Um, you know, the, the way he treats other people uh, when it comes to trying to find out where Cleopatra's tomb might be, uh, he, he basically says, no, it, it can't be there. I just know it. it is there. And there's an awful lot of knowledge uh, in the heads of these people of, of, of academia. Another example is Jane Wolfe from the Smithsonian um, who goes around you know, saying that crystal skulls are all made at the end of the 19th century in, in some uh, small German town. And she has zero evidence for this. Uh, you know, she doesn't have a shred of um, even oral records that any of these crystal skulls came from this town. But she has all of these magazines and she gets on television um, you know, proclaiming this as if it is this great truth. And she hasn't got a single sentence, um, you know, backing up her, her theory. There is not a single footnote available for it. Um, but because she's an academic with the Smithsonian, she can, you know, she can basically preach dogma. Um, and everybody else falls in line. And so, you know, she is the expert within academics when it comes to crystal skulls. And um, as a result, everybody in academia will say that crystal skulls are known um, to, to be of modern origin. And it's simply not true. Then Western academia is, in my opinion, then behaving just like organized religion. You can't question them because they'll tell you this is why the book says it is this way. Leave it alone. Absolutely. So I find this information fascinating, Philip, because on this program, we're always saying that we need to start the mythologizing history. Is this what Eric von Daniken and in a way you are also doing with your work? Well, Eric, you know, we we are, I think, differently approaching certain things. Um, when it comes to the Bible, what I always say is this isn't a book about morality. At some point, we have begun to look at this book for morality. But when you start reading the Bible, obviously the Old Testament more so than the New Testament, right. um, this is to do with the Jewish people who are relating what is happening to them, their ups, their downs, and interspersed with this are what we today would call fortune anomalies. Um, the story of Ezekiel is one of them. This is a guy who is a Babylonian, uh, sorry, a, a Jewish high priest in exile in Babylon, and he has this weird encounter. He's abducted, taken to a foreign land, returned, and this happens four times in his lifetime. Um, 
and and basically because he's a high priest this this gets recorded and this becomes part of of you know what later would become known as the old testament there's very little morality to ezekiel um he's just relating this this is what happened to me i can't explain this but i feel we have to pass this on to our descendants and this is very much a theme uh within the bible like weird things sometimes happens and we want you to know about these things and when it comes to to so many other things, we, we once again jump on this moral thing. For example, the story of, of Atlantis. Um, Eric writes about it in Odyssey of the Gods. Um, and what he, basically the story of Atlantis is, is a story by Plato who says that, um, you know, in a book about history, that there was once this lost civilization called Atlantis, that one of his uh, family members a few decades before went to um, Egypt, that he was told of the civilization, that they showed him the wall, or which in hieroglyphs or in another kind of writing, uh, the story of Atlantis had been uh, written down. And, um, you know, he writes it and he says, this is history. It is known that at its time when Plato wrote this down, he wasn't believed as this being factual. So what happened was a few ancient Greeks jumped on a boat, uh, went to Egypt, spoke to those priests and said, yep, that's the wall over there. Um, jumped back into a boat to, to Greece and said, yep, oops, sorry, Plato is indeed right. There are indications of uh, Egypt, you know, that, that there is the story of lost civilization. Now, that doesn't mean Atlantis existed. It just means that Plato wasn't inventing this. Um, when you look at academics um, who are discussing Pl Plato and the story of Atlantis, um, what you will constantly hear um, is this attitude that Plato was talking about morality, that he was greatly upset with the way the ancient, uh, the ancient Greeks were behaving themselves. And so what he wanted to do was show a completely different society, an ideal society, which also should serve as a warning for the um, you know, 5th century BC uh, Greek people. And so therefore that the story of Atlantis isn't necessarily a true story, but a morality lesson uh, done by Plato, and they will tell you this. You know, they, they go on television and say this, um, and it is utterly fraudulent. Uh, you know, they either know nothing about uh, Plato whatsoever, in which case they're idiots, or they know uh, everything about Plato, which is that Plato says that this was history, as well as that in his lifetime. Uh, you know, it was confirmed that this story was to be found uh, on Egyptian walls. And so that would make them fraudulent. There is no in-between. They're either idiots or frauds. Um, and so, you know, that is something which you you see so often. And so what we have is, or what I try to do, is, is basically show that there is a, a third alternative, that Plato, you know, is talking about something which is genuine, and that maybe we should start to begin to explore this. And in Odyssey of the Gods, um, Eric is doing a, a, a similar approach. We've all grown up with classical education as to what ancient Greece is all about. Um, and to a large extent, when we read stories of, you know, Homer's Iliad or the Odyssey or, or various other things which ancient Greeks have written, we consider this to be some kind of ancient fantasy writing or ancient science fiction. Um, and we have this approach that, you know, like, oh, Homer was a brilliant person. He wrote about these magical things. Um, look how literal these, these, these Greeks were. And this is how it is taught to us. Well, this is how it is taught to us, but this is not why the ancient Greeks were writing this down. The ancient Greeks weren't saying this was fiction. The ancient Greeks were writing down 
things which happened in the past and things which we um you know have science fictionalized but which for them was part of their history it was something which they wanted to see recorded very much like the jews did with the bible and so what you have um you know in the case of, of for example jason and the Argonauts, is um something which basically is an anomaly the ancient greeks want you to know that at one point in time there was this bunch of people led by jason who went to a foreign distant land in search of something which was now known as the golden fleece and when you see a description of this and as eric explains in odyssey of the gods um you know it becomes apparent that this is a machine something which is able to fly Jason goes out there because he wants to find it. He's somehow heard of this. And he gets people on board um, who basically are going to help him. Uh, and some of them say that they are able to pilot and or navigate this this object. Um, and so that is something completely different from uh, the, this this other side of things, which is, um, you know, almost like a a kind of like hangover or hangover two scenario in which Jason jumps in a boat with a few mates uh, to get drunk in a distant <laughs> land to right. go after a piece of fur because hey, what else would we do this weekend? That's right. Um, and and so you know that is kind of like very much I think what what Eric uh, myself and so many other people are trying to do. We're trying to show that the way we are looking at some of these things is not the way. Um, you know, they were meant to, to be, to be looked at. That, that modern science is, is really distorting the perspective of, of so many aspects. One of the things modern science keeps, uh, throwing at the ancient alien, uh, people is that, um, basically we are doing a disservice to these civilizations that we are somehow taking away from the ancient Egyptians, the ancient Mayans, and that we somehow believe they weren't able to do these things and that we uh, instead call upon the gods literally mm-hmm. um, and, and pretend or, or say um, that they did it and that this is some form of like intellectual racism uh, that we are denying these civilizations the, their own things uh, whereas science is saying you know that that they did all of these things by themselves well um, you know when it comes to all of these civilizations if you really want to appreciate them and really want to respect them you should um, agree with what they proclaim themselves you should take into account um, their own belief systems and ancient civilizations whether it's ancient Egypt or the ancient Mayan or whichever you want to take always said that the path of civilization was not walked by them alone but that it was walked hand in hand with the gods who helped them on this path of civilization and so you know there are either two raise about this there is either the ancient alien way which basically agrees with these ancient civilizations and says indeed this is you know they say this and there is evidence for uh for what they say uh drawing this conclusion and the the other alternative is that we are looking towards the scientists who are basically denying them uh, who, who basically saying our ancestors were idiots because they claimed that they did this with the help of the gods, but actually they didn't. There is no such thing as gods. They did it all to them. They did it all by themselves. And if modern science says we were demeaning the Egyptians or the Mayans and saying that they had help, why is it that we aren't able to replicate? Let's pick one of the pyramids. We can't even come close to replicating them or moving the stones of Baalbek. You see where I'm coming from. Absolutely. You know, there is so much material out there, uh, which clearly shows that 
the pyramids are, you know, a, a, a tremendously interesting uh, project. That what is happening is is that this is something which, uh, you know, is is vastly different in approach than we uh, give it credit for these days. And um, you know, I'm absolutely convinced that the ancient Egyptians built the pyramids. But they built them in a radically different way with radically different techniques than we are uh, approaching them. They right. were technologically more uh, evolved, more sophisticated than we uh, give them credit for. And if we continue to try and replicate um, you know, the pyramids in the way we think they built them, the, everything is going to fail. We need to take into account what they said about the pyramid building themselves uh, and do it in those manners. And then we are going to find out that these things can be accomplished. Um, you know, this, this, this wasn't done uh, at a stupid level. This was done by people who had uh, techniques and technology uh, and especially you know, an extraordinary amount of project management involved in, in accomplishing all of these feats. And speaking of uh, Egypt and Greece, here's one aspect of history, Western history, that is, that, that embraces Greek history, but seems to stop there. And, and what we know of the Egyptians, we know through the Greeks. Why don't, why don't we know more beyond the Greeks and what came before? Is this embargo imposed on purpose or, or not? And what happened to the history that we now know spans for thousands of years beyond the Greeks? Well, you know, when I um, was 10 years old, I was in school and we were being taught about the ancient civilizations. And we had a teacher who was telling us about ancient Greece. And just before we had been speaking about the ancient Egyptians. And on this threshold, um, he, he was ill and the director of the school basically decided to substitute one day. Mm. And so he began to tell us that the ancient Egyptians, uh, sorry, that the ancient Greeks were the, the cradle of everything. They were right. the cradle of civilization, which kind of didn't make any sense because we had just been told that there was such a thing as ancient Egypt before. Right. The ancient Greeks themselves said that ancient Egypt uh, you know, was much older. And so there is this generational approach because that was the problem there. Um, you know, the director had been taught that the ancient Greeks uh, were at the cradle of everything. And, and a generation later, the teacher had been told that the ancient Egyptians were at the cradle of everything. Now we are slowly pushing this back, but very thing, you know, very few people are being taught in school about Cattle Huyuk, um, which has been known about for decades, which pushes things like Jericho uh, nearby as well to, to 8000 BC. In the most recent years, we've got Gobekli Tepe, which goes back 10,000 years, um, rather to 10,000 BC. And um, all of these things, you know, are are out there, but it takes years, if not decades, before, um, you know, things are being caught up before textbooks catch up. Um, and so there's this very slow on-take. Um, and, and Greece is, is being... Greece is, is to some extent a victim of this and also the, the best example of this. We we still give Greeks an awful lot of credit for things like you know the invention of pi and phi, whereas we know that these things were used in megaliths in 3000 BC. They were used in the Great Pyramid at the same time. Everybody, you know, every civilization before was using this. We credit Pythagoras with certain discoveries, whereas Pythagoras himself said that he went to Egypt and, and found it there. Um, so it was imported rather than created um, in in Greece, and the Greeks never said that they invented these things. You know, they said that the cradle of civilization was Egypt. Um, yet, um, in the nineteen 
entering the 20th century, you have people like the German uh, archaeologist Otto Neugebauer, who basically writes that the ancient Egyptians in the development of, of science and insights and architecture did not contribute a single thing. Um, you know, and, and he is still quoted um, as the godfather um, by, by so many Egyptologists. They, they, they worship him. And I think you know Egypt. So, so Greece is credited with with certain things which they didn't invent, which they didn't do or didn't invent. Um, but I also think Egypt is uh, sorry. Greece is also the victim of the fact that they are at this threshold um, of history and and prehistory. So, whereas we treat uh, Greece with beautiful accolades whenever it comes to their history, we consider everything they write about their prehistory as being invented, as being somehow second, second, uh, secondary importance. And this is what Eric in Odyssey of the Gods is specifically trying to do. He's trying to show that what is Greek mythology, um, you know, what is Greek legend is, is really a, a record of them which was written down in historical times, because by default it was written down, but that these were accounts of their ancestors, which had survived throughout the ages, and that you know the, we shouldn't be looking upon ancient Greek um, legend and mythology as something which is modern-day science fiction, but that for the ancient Greeks this was a scientific fact. This was something which wasn't recorded at the time, but which was recorded later. Um, and Academics have, you know, a, a great um, problem with that. Things like Troy are more the subject of literature studies uh, or, or classical studies rather than anything to do with archaeology or, or history. And, and that is a big problem. Um, you know, we have or science has been able to push it into a category um, where it's safe uh, and out of danger for the hallowed halls of academia. And to some extent, you know, uh, again, it'll remain there unless there's a shakeup. Even uh, Eric Van Daniken says that words have been changed. Even at the beginning of his book, he talks about the word orgy and the real meaning of it. But uh, the word mythology comes from the word mythos, which means historic events that were sworn to be accurate and true by priests and kings. It was an affidavit of accuracy in history. So it actually means completely the opposite to the value that we have ascribed it to it today. So academia once again changes things so that we can change their meaning. Absolutely, you know, and and um, it is something which which happens uh, so often. Um, one of the things which Eric I think does great in this book is show how these um, these myths and legends are adapted. Yeah. Uh, so when somebody translates it, let's say in 1836 or, or or thereabouts, he they sometimes come across a word and they don't understand it, and so they say. Oh well, we don't understand this, but from the context, we think this right. is what it is. And then uh, a few decades later, somebody says, "Like, mm, yeah, this is kind of like a bit of a wooden translation. We'll we'll liven it up a bit because this is all about morality, and this was, you know, literature. Um, so we can kind of play play with it a bit. And so when somebody today is reading the the Odyssey or or whatever Greek account, um, you you get a you get this thing that it does read like science fiction or fiction or or literature um but it's not and so on a number of occasions there it goes back into uh the original greek wording and and basically says well 
this is what they wrote. They didn't get it in 1836, uh, but this is what they wrote, and and this is the picture which emerges. Um, and it makes more sense, you know. Why would a bunch of people jump on a ship to a distant land in ch- search of a piece of fur? Right. Uh, it doesn't really make that much sense. Um, but when you start looking at the original words and also begin to look at the alternative meanings, um. You know, because so many words, even in the English language, has more than, than one meaning. Um, you're beginning to realize that they were talking about something else and something far more interesting and also something far more logical. Um, you know, if I told you that there might be a spacecraft um, sequestered in a place where you can uh, drive to, you will probably jump in a car with, with a group of friends in, 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 in efforts of, of trying to find out. That makes sense. If I tell you that you should be driving, uh, you know, a thousand miles because there's a sheep which has a bit of special fur there. You'll probably say in this day and age, send me a photograph. I might be interested. Right. Um, and and that is basically, uh, you know, the logical distinction uh, which which Eric puts back into to these myths and whereby they make sense as to why the ancient Greeks would be uh, writing about them rather than about a piece of fur. And obviously, Eric Van Daniken talks about the word gods, and it was Arthur C. Clarke who coined the phrase, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. So could could what the ancient ones referred to as gods be aliens who landed in their craft, and, and since advanced technology may be construed as magic, could they have labeled them as gods because we didn't have a clue about the, the technology or space travel, and that's why they idolized them as gods? Well, I, I even think the, the notion of... Um you know whether or not they understood about the technology is, is to some extent um, secondary. What uh, I show in, in in my book, the ancient alien question, is a bit of the cargo cults, and in that instance, what you have is that during the Second World War, uh, specifically after uh, the, the the problems of which uh, you know America had to enter and, and fight. Uh, China, Japan, and all of these, these, these in, in all of these uh, places, um, was the fact that America was far away from these things. So certain islands in the South Pacific were chosen as midway stations to 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 fight the wars uh, in Asia, and these were people who had barely escaped the Stone Age, and all of a sudden they found that there were landing strips being made, that there were you know, material being built. All of a sudden these locals were given food rather than they had to hunt for it. They even had such things as washing machines and all of these things were just uh, you know, sometimes literally falling out of the sky. And then for them, unfortunately, the Second World War ended and the American troops disappeared. And they began to um, build runways, they began to build reed huts, they began to uh, rebuild uh, radio antennas, they even began to rebuild um, some of the planes from reed in the hope that the gods would return and bring Mm. back this golden age whereby all of a sudden they had these luxury goods. And, um, you know, obviously this kind of magic didn't work. Um, But for a brief period of time, the gods were there and they deified some of these people um, and you know there was a white civilizing deity who brought these things for them at some point and the god came from the skies Um, and that is definitely something which you know has happened in in, in recent history Uh, a few months ago I think there was uh, an uncontacted tribe somewhere in Brazil Brazil. Um, and you know the photographs were taken by airplane and again you will you have to wonder whenever this this, uh, tribe is contacted through uh, the overland, 
and and we can communicate with them um what they thought when this thing was flying over them um what was it how did they interpret this so there are a number of instances whereby it's clear um you know that that men or or other human beings or 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 other intelligences have been mistaken for gods but i think it's an end universe um, I, I think definitely when you look at ancient civilizations, there are clear cases um, whereby they are talking about God with a big G, and then they're, they're also talking about gods. And to some extent, this is something which we do as well. And sometimes, you know, they go hand in hand. Uh, you see the guy who is about to run in the final of the Olympic, you know, 100 meters dash, um, pray to God, make the cross, sit, you know, sit in the starting blocks and then wins a gold medal and is, is pretty much deified by the rest of us for being the fastest man on earth for the next four years. Uh, and, and, you know, we, we, we put him on the cover of magazines. Uh, we put t- we make t-shirts of him. We make, uh, television documentaries about him. We treat some of these people as gods. Yet yeah. we absolutely know that Usain Bolt, uh, Brad Pitt, take your pick, Angelina Jolie, um, all of these people are just as human um, as 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 you and I. Um, we just kind of, you know, we hold them in higher esteem, and this is also the case uh, in in ancient times. There is clear distinctions of of gods with small g, and and the doctrine of gods, this 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 thing which is far bigger than anything from us, uh, with a big g. So. Uh, the classic idea that somehow the ancient alien uh, theory does away with God with a big G, uh, I, I don't think is is the case. I think it happened quite naturally in the in the 1960s and 70s when there was this new wave um, of of thinking that you know some of these things had been misinterpreted. That religion was kind of like a, a, a bit stupid. Um, you know that that was kind of like a, a, an invoke trend, specifically in, in Europe at the time. Um, and and so the popularity of of ancient aliens at that moment in time definitely uh, was there because it left this kind of midway thing. It was like the Bible is factual, the Bible is correct. It's just that God with a big G is actually sm- God's with a small G, um, and it left kind of like you know the the the, the literacy of of the Bible uh, intact. In but but I, I you know I, that is not my opinion. My opinion definitely is that that it is an end universe. That there is f- more than enough room for God with a big G and God's with small G's. I forgot if it was Dr. Brooks Agnew or Michael Cream who told me this story, but uh, one of them went to the Great Pyramid not too long ago, and they were taken to an area that not a lot of tourists go, and they take a lot of professors. But it was pitch black, he had a flashlight, and it was this huge statue. And he started flashing the light from the feet all the way up, and the face was that of an astronaut with the helmet and the tank. Can you believe that? I, I definitely can believe that, um, and um, I hope you find out uh, which of those two it was. Yes, <laughs> I'm able yes. to see it because I'm dashing to Egypt at the end of this year. But yes, I mean, you know, there have been there have been re- remarkable stories. I mean, my wife um, Kathleen McGowan, uh, she visited Egypt on a number of occasions, and in the 1990s, she was there with a friend, and she basically connected with one of the local uh, wisdom keepers. You know, people who have lived there, whose families have lived there for hundreds of thousands of years, and she. Uh, yeah, both of them were taken in by by these people offered you know friendship and at night uh, before Dr. Hawass built his gigantic wall around the, the complex um, they went to a, a side pyramid uh, and they were let in 
and and basically this man whose nickname was uh, Wolf, um, sorry Fox, um, actually um, kind of said you know like well you know if you really want to experience what it is like, um, try and find your way out of here and two women basically said like that's going to be easy it's like it's a pyramid there's only one way in one way out um and he basically said oh might not be that simple <laughs> um and so they realized that that what they were being subjected to was an initiation story um and you know afterwards fox told them various other things you know he 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 showed them they literally saw how some of these walls began to to move uh, when sound was displayed and uh, mm. we ha- we are quite good friends with dr carmen boulter who wrote the pyramid code uh, who knew you know hakim who features in the pyramid code and and his family and there is far more to these complexes than 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 so far meets the eye again archaeology and egyptology is only interested in the dead mummies and the ruins um but there is you know there are living traditions in these places of people who live there and who realize that there is far more to this complex that there are energetical anomalies that there are you know hidden hidden caves that there is so much more to it than that and i I think to a large extent um i think it's a good thing that some of these things remain hidden because uh even though many people in the world um are are anxious to to see some of these things coming out uh definitely from an authoritative point of view uh you know the halls of politicians the halls of academics um those people definitely, I think, would prefer that these things don't come out, that, that the standard paradigm remains. And so for these things to be kept secret until there's a bit more openness in the air is, is probably a good thing. Well, speaking of sound, I know you know the story of Ed Lee Scowland in uh, Coral Castle. And a lot of people don't know this, but he built the castle in one place in Florida City and then moved it by himself 10 miles away to Homestead. What do you think he used? I mean, this is a 100-pound, five-feet-tall, uneducated man who did it all by himself, and he left the, you know, took the the secret with him. I believe. What's your take on him? I think he's one of a number of um, people who, um, you know, were geniuses. Actually, in in season four of of Ancient Aliens, this this notion of genius is, is discussed in a number of episodes, Good. and also how you know what geniuses do, how it works, um, and the example of of Einstein is is a modern example, but basically. Einstein was told, or, or sorry, Einstein told as to how he came up with some of his inventions and his insights. And he basically said that, you know, at one moment in time, it was as if a floodgate opened and all of a sudden his brain knew mm. everything there was to know about a certain aspect. A download. A download. And, you know, this is something which you see time and time again. An awful lot of people who we regard as geniuses basically say that they, they, didn't really work that hard or they didn't have that um um you know kind of level of education um there are some examples of of people who weren't that educated but somehow did uh, you know extraordinary things and Lee Scullin I think is is one of them the Tesla I, Tesla is definitely one of them and I was you know going there because I think that definitely those two but several others as well um had a far more uh deep insightful insight if that's a if that's a, a term, phrase to use into the laws of 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 physics that they understood certain things which we have abandoned and i've i've, I've forgotten who it is it, it might have been tesla but one of the early pioneers of electricity uh, once said that 
he was absolutely convinced that electricity had intelligence and that what you know we thought of electricity was only 10% of what electricity truly was but that 90% of electricity never was explored because we were only focusing on the 10% of making light of making you know engines run um and that was really only 10% we and he himself uh, was not allowed to to time pressure to economic pressures of making uh, engines run and lights go on and off um, to to focus on the ninety percent which he felt was far more interesting and so what I think Leeds Kalin realized and and so many others of these geniuses has realized is that um, there is far more to to certain things than 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 what we give credit for that we can do certain things uh you know at a very um fundamental level we all know that when we sing uh or at least when some people sing uh, they can break glass that's true um and so when it comes to um you know that that is sound doing certain things sound interacting with with a a hard subject uh, you know a hard object um so if we use sound in a different way um, you know, rather than break the break the stone block, uh, maybe it begins to float, and that definitely seems to be uh, you know, the, the technology which uh, Leeds Kalin was using. There's an incident um, when he was moving from uh, or to Homestead about how he basically asked the the truck driver to leave the truck overnight, and yeah, yes. uh, you know he would he would do it on himself, and he asked the truck driver to to go away. I think again, you know, these are people who had insights. And I think it's also, uh, you know, interesting that in this day of science, whereby we have so many mathematical equations and so much, uh, you know, we have this idea that 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 science is so complex. Uh, to some extent, obviously, science is complex, but also I think the laws of physics, to to large extent, are very simple. And the more complex we make them, I think, the further away we get from the truth. Um, Jack Sarfati once said that he didn't believe a single thing about the string theory because basically it was yet another complex thing to uh, try to explain something complex which a previous theory had made complex. But he realized that you know if you bring it down, there was a very simple problem which somebody tried to explain. Then creating another problem which became a more complex solution and basically string theory was this extraordinary complex thing without any value because it was five generations away from the original question which was posed and i think you know again um that that we we have to realize that further we the more complex we think reality is the, the more probably we're further away from from reality i quite often think that um you know we can do an awful lot with with a deep understanding of, of the laws of, of our reality. And I think this is why some of our ancestors were able to do some of the things they did. Uh, and I think Leeds Callan was a, a, a recent example of this. And I think uh, Litz Kalner was the one who said, I have discovered the secrets of the pyramids. I have found out how the Egyptians and the ancient builders in Peru, Yucatan and Asia, with only primitive tools, raised and set in place blocks of stone weighing many tons. Just like Tesla, like, like Litz Kalner, and maybe even Einstein. I wonder if they kept some of their secret or, or, or their knowledge and wisdom because they had this idea that it could be used for nefarious purposes, don't you think? Absolutely. I mean, you know, I I'm normally not one to advocate that the government has a right to uh, 
classify certain information. But in the case of Tesla, I, I do think they, they had uh, some right. Not necessarily the blanket. Um, Electricity. Uh, yes. I mean, basically, when Tesla says, I am working on an experiment which can literally break the, the, the Earth into two halves. Right. That's kind of dangerous technology. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it makes um, a, 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 a terrorist somewhere running around with a, with a small nuclear device fail in significance towards technology which could literally uh, split the earth in two and so the fact that um you know there is a cover-up or whatever you want to call it um uh, a secretion away of 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 all of this information of technology or an understanding of the laws of physics which allows the earth to be split into half i think at this moment in time is probably a good thing um you know i I like the earth uh the way it is right now and and airfares probably would go up tremendously if we somehow had to fly from one half of the earth to the other uh with a bit in between missing and we have to take a one and only intermission, Philip, but I have to ask you a question. I'll get you answer on the other side. The question is, what do you think the purpose is of perpetuating these myths by, by current academia? Uh, why is the hidden history forbidden from us knowing? And I'll take the answer on the other side. But tell us how to buy this, uh, this book, uh, Odyssey of the Gods, the History of Extraterrestrial Contact in Ancient Greece. Your books as well, Ancient Aliens, and how do people watch her on, on Ancient Aliens on the History Channel? Um, well, basically, for anything to do with me, you can go to philipcoppins.com. Uh, my book, The Ancient Alien Question, uh, Eric's book, uh, Odyssey of the Gods, are both published by the same publisher called New Page Books. And those books are available everywhere where books are sold, whether that is Barnes & Noble, online or in bookshops, um, Amazon, basically anywhere where books are sold. These books are either available or are um, reachable, attainable um, by making an inquiry. And we have also links on our website. And when we come back, we'll ask that question again. And I have to tell you, folks, that when I speak with, with great guests like Philip Coppins, I get a little bit frustrated, not because of him, but the fact that I get to know more information that academia seems to completely evade or out of arrogance keeps admitting that it's not true. But when we come back, we have so much more with Philip Coppins. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas Radio. Don't go anywhere. Thank you very much for listening. We're going to talk more with our special guest in our members section. If you're not a member, just head on over to our website, veritasshow.com, and click on the subscribe link to listen to the rest of the show. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with more. Enjoy. Thank you. 
This is Kim Carlsberg, and you're listening to Veritas Radio. Mm-hmm. 